Let's pray, and we'll get into the message. All right, God, we thank you for this chance to worship you. Uh, we thank you for this chance to, to come together and sing. We thank you for this chance to gather around your word. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be humble. Um, God, I pray for those of us who, maybe all of us, who just have a tendency to push back against your word, to say, ah, oh, that doesn't sound quite like it, like maybe I know a little bit better, or the, the call is too high, um, or other things are more important. God, I pray that you would just dispel such foolish wickedness from us. God, I pray that we would be humble, that we would come to you as our God, and that we would submit to you, that we would be eager to learn from you. Lord, I pray um, for those of us who are, who are struggling with sin, who are struggling with discouragement. Um, God, may we see your grace more clearly. And um, Lord, for all of us, may we just be called to a greater picture of who you are and a greater picture of what our, our lives can be through you. Amen. All right, so this morning uh, we're continuing our series called Hope for All. And this is a series about who we are as a people who have placed our hope in Jesus and as a people who are bound together um, by this calling and this opportunity and this purpose and this privilege of sharing the hope that we have with everyone. You know, with, with every man, woman, and child across the street and around the world. So last week we began with, um, with a verse in the middle of uh, 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And I'll just read kind of the, the nugget of it, the central part of it to you right now. Uh, it's God's call that we would always be prepared or always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks us to give the reason for the hope that we have. Let me give it to you one more time. Always be prepared... Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. We talked last week about how this verse assumes that we have a hope and that we have a hope to share and that this hope is so deep and so resonant within us um, that it's observable to the people around us. That as our neighbors and strangers and classmates and coworkers interact with us, they see that there is something profound, profoundly different about us. So much so that it, it just stirs them to ask, what is up with you? What is it that's different about you? And Peter says, it's in this moment that I want you to be ready to give an answer. I want you to be, be ready to explain, it's the hope that I have in Jesus in his life and death and resurrection that, that makes me interact with you differently than I otherwise would, that, that makes me resilient, that, that makes me confident, that makes me not just hopeful for the future, but, but, but ultimately hopeful in the promises of my God. You know, when, when we talk about hope in our culture, in, in kind of a worldly sense, it's, it's like a wish. Like, man, I hope the Cubs win another World Series this year. I hope, you know, these, these sorts of things. And if you're a baseball fan, you know that there's no chance of that. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not this steady thing. But the hope that we see in Scripture, it's the steadfast confidence in the God who has made these promises that he will keep his promises that he is faithful in every way imaginable, and our entire lives are anchored in him. So that's this, this hope that we talked about last week, but we also acknowledged that that sort of hope, it's not natural. Despair and discouragement, those are natural. Like if you've been feeling some of those things this week, you're normal. Hello, this is, this is us. You know, anxiety and anger, fear and frustration, these things come naturally. 
for fallen men and women living in a sin-cursed world. But hope is not natural. Hope, this, this confidence in who God is and, and what God says, it's, it's a supernatural work of God in us. And last week we, we talked about ways that we can partner with God in that supernatural work. That, that hope requires discipline, you know, spiritual disciplines, leaning in and remembering what God has said. That, that hope requires grace. That, that when we fail, when we fall short, when we, when we fail to fix our eyes on Jesus, we need to remember his grace. Because it's his love and his grace and his compassion that draws us back to look at him again. If all we see is our failure, we're not going to want to look to Jesus. But if we remember his grace, we will. You know, and finally, we talked about how hope requires mutual encouragement. That, that even in the midst of COVID, we've got to find ways to gather together. You know, whether it be on Sunday morning, whether it be in smaller groups, hopefully both. We need mutual encouragement in our faith. You know, God sustains us by His Spirit. He sustains us through His Word. But by His design, a, a part of His work to sustain us is directly through the, the ministry of the people who are sitting in this room with us. He didn't design us to be independent. He, he designed us to be beautifully dependent on one another. So last week was all about the hope that we have and how do we sustain that hope? How, how do we maintain this hope so that we can share it with others? This week, I want to talk about growing in our hope. I want to talk about growth in the Christian life. Um, you know, if, if we were framing it a different way in a different series, I might just come out and say, I want to talk about a process of discipleship. What it looks like to grow in our hope. What it looks like to go um, from people who are just spiritual outsiders. You know, who, who are standing outside the church, outside the family of God, out, outside of a knowledge or even an interest in the things of God. We're on the outside looking in because that's where we all start. I want to talk about growing from spiritual outsiders to not only people who have hope in Christ, but people who have a hope that is so robust and so steady and so central that it can't help but overflow into the lives of those around us. So I want to look at this as a process. And if, you're, if you've been around Mosaic for a while, you know on a typical Sunday, you know, we're picking three, five, maybe eight verses, and, and we're just working through this, this kind of narrow, zoomed-in scope of Scripture. And we're expounding it and showing how it points to the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? That's, that's what we typically do. Um, that's, that's preaching, as we usually do it. Uh, this week and next week, they're going to be a little bit different. They're going to be a little bit more like teaching, a little bit more like training. Um, what I want to do is, is go through a bunch of scriptures, just briefly, and I want us to, I want us to begin to, to develop some categories. And what I'm hoping for here is that as we think about sharing our faith with the world around us, I want to I make that a little bit less intimidating. I want to make that less daunting. I want to I break it down into different steps, different, different components, um, diff, different kinds of people that God has given us to love and to serve and to invite into his kingdom, Okay. I want, us, I want us to get a little bit more diagnostic in this process and, and so that we can engage in it together. So that's what we're going for this week and the next couple of weeks. Um, this morning I want to talk briefly about our call to discipleship. And then I want to talk about the first two stages in this, uh, what I've kind of mapped out as a five-stage process of growing as disciples. As becoming people who increasingly hope in Jesus and who increasingly effectively share that hope. Um, so, so this call to be and to make disciples, it begins with the Great Commission. Uh, what Jared read, the final words in the Gospel of Matthew, the last three verses, Matthew chapter 28, beginning with verse 18, it says this. 
then Jesus came to them, and them is this, this early gathering of his followers. You know, right before he sends into heaven, it's, it's the 100, 120 people or so that had rallied around him and placed their faith in him and, and were the early seeds of the church. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's risen from the dead and he's grabbed hold of that authority. Verse 19, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, literally all ethnicities, all kinds of people, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Here's what I want us to get out of this verse. I want us to see that this is a call to all followers of Jesus. You know, it's not just a call to pastors. It's not just a call to, you know, the, the hyper-spiritually mature. It's, it's not just a call to those who, who find this sort of call more interesting. Um, all authority has been given to him. Jesus has claimed lordship over all of us. And this is a call to all of us. Uh, not only to recognize him as Lord, but to, but to share the hope that we have with him with everybody. And that's, that's the second thing that I want us to see. It's not just a call to all of us to share, but it's a hope to be shared with everyone. Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. The word nation in Greek, it's ethnos. It's where we get ethnicity. It's, it's, it's all ethnicities, all races, all kinds of people. It's one of the barriers that I want us to overcome is to stop thinking about the Christian faith as something that's just for Christians, people who are already in the club, people who already have that heritage, or people who are in some way like us. All right? When, when Jesus gave this calling, he, he wasn't just giving it to Jews. Jesus was Jewish. Everyone he was talking to in this moment was Jewish. But he didn't say, hey, there's a lot of Jews spread out in the world. Let's get the message to them. It was explicitly, specifically contrary to that. Yeah, we're, we're taking the message to people who are like us, but the emphasis on we're taking the message to people who are not like us. To all nations, to all ethnicities, to all races, to, to all kinds of people. So this message, this hope that we have, this hope that we want to share, whatever your demographic, it's not just for people like you. This is, a, this is a message of hope given by the creator of all things. The creator of all people. The creator of the universe. The creator of time. And he claims lordship over all of us. And he offers hope and life to all of us. So this is a message that he's called us to take to Hindus and to Buddhists. To Muslims and to Mormons. To black and white and every shade in between. You know, to every nation, to all kinds of people. This is, this, this is a message that, that we bring to the university professors and to the high school dropouts. This is a message that we bring to the suburban soccer moms living in their mini mansions. And this is the same message that we bring to the 12-year-old moms living in Section 8 housing. It's the same hope. And it is a better hope than anything that they're going to find in the world. It's the only ultimate hope. And we're called to figure out how do we take it to all of them? How do we take it to all nations? How do we take it to China? How do we take it to, to Cuba? How do we take it to India? How do we share this hope with all kinds of people? And it's not just 
that we're called to share a message. We're called to share our hope. We're called, we're called to do even more than share our hope. We're, we're called to make disciples. We're called to be used by God in this supernatural work of seeing people who have absolutely no interest in Jesus join us as passionate pursuers of Jesus. If you understand the calling, you should find it intimidating. You should find it daunting. You should be like, where do we even begin? How do we do that? I can't even work out what it looks like to follow Jesus myself. How am I going to be his instrument to transform the lives of others? And yet that is exactly what we're called to. And we're not called to do that in our own strength. We're called to do that in the strength of the Spirit, empowered by His grace. Amen? God is the one who is working in us towards this end. This is why it's called the Great Commission. Because our calling is immense, beyond the scope of anything that we could hope to achieve in our own strength. But again, this morning, I just want to break it down. I want to make it more approachable. I want us to imagine what it would look like to enter into this process with any and every kind of individual that we might encounter in our day. You know, what, what, is, what does this look like for some of you who have small children, three-year-olds, four-year-olds? What does this look like to disciple them, to call them to follow Jesus? To some of you who are in high school, what, is, what does this look like to engage your classmates? To those of you who are a little bit older, what does it look like to engage your coworkers, your neighbors? to invite them into your lives, to invite them into the hope that we have. As we go through this process uh, this week and next week, here's what I want everyone in the room to do. I want you to ask, where am I at in this process? Just kind of use this as as a diagnostic tool. And I don't want you to feel shame about that, like some of you are early in the process, some of you are far along in the process. You're not getting any merit points with Jesus or the pastor, okay? This is... I just want us to be honest. Where are we at in this process of figuring out what it looks like to place our hope in Jesus Christ? And I also want us to be thinking through the people in our lives. Where are they at in this process? What would it look like to enter into their lives at the stage that they're at and help them to draw nearer to Jesus? All right, so where do we begin? We we all begin as outsiders. That could be an atheist, that could be agnostic, that could be antagonistic, that could simply be indifferent. But all of us begin on the outside. As those, as those who really don't know God very well, or don't know God at all, who, who don't understand this hope that we talk about, who don't understand the gospel. You know, even if you grew up in the church, like I think of my kids, I mean, they have been surrounded by the gospel since, since the day they were born. You know, when, when I held them in my arms when they were tiny, I would gently sing hymns of God's grace into their tiny little ears. That was something that I loved to do. There was, there was, there was never a time when they had a concept of the world that wasn't deeply rooted in the reality of who God is and what God has done. Yet even Luke and Chloe, they began on the outside spiritually. There, there were people who... who you know, for all of my best efforts, they really didn't understand who God is. They didn't understand the good news of his grace. And they, and they, like all of us, were fallen. Descendants of Adam, born into a natural alienation and rebellion against God. Some of you are like, oh, how can you say that about children? They're so cute. And then some of you, you actually have kids. And like, 
Yes, rebellion. Yes, yes, it is not in their nature to obey. It's in their nature to disobey. That's just how it is. You know, and then you get around my age and you forget when they were young and, and you know, you, you get a little bit more influenced by the world and like, oh, I don't know about original sin. And then maybe you become grandparents again, like original sin. You know, that's, that's, that's just how they are. So we all begin as spiritual outsiders. Maybe that's exactly where you are today. Not exactly sure who God is. Not understanding this gospel that we talk about. Not, not impacted it. If that's where you're at, welcome to Mosaic Church. What does an outsider need? An outsider needs to be invited in. Specifically, they need to see the love of God in the gospel and in the lives of his people. That's what I want you to get. If you get nothing else out of this message, get this starting point for all of us. What do all of us need? And this is a need for the outsider. This is a need that we continue to have as we grow in grace. Okay? Those who are on the spiritual outside, and, and to a great degree, all of us, we need to see the love of God in the gospel and in his people, in the lives and in the love of his people. When Jesus began his ministry in the gospel of John, one of the first things that comes out of his mouth uh, to those who are coming him, to him, questioning him, curious about him, they're like, hey, what are you doing? Where are you staying? Tell us about you. And, and what does he say? He says, come and you will see. A little bit later in that same chapter, John chapter 1, as, as Jesus has gathered, two or three guys are starting to follow him. And they're like, oh, man, we, 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 we got something good here. And we want the people we love to get in on it. We see this guy, Philip. He goes to his friend, Nathaniel. And he likewise invites him to come and see. Philip was one of the first disciples of Jesus. John uh, chapter 1, verse 45, we read, Philip found Nathanael. And he told him, we have found the one. <laughs> we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Ipsy. Wrong side of the tracks. How? This guy says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Come and see, said Philip. Come and see. It's not an argument, but an invitation. Not just to hear our message, but to enter into our lives. It speaks to hospitality. And this is something that has fallen on hard times in, in this COVID era, right? That has historically been a great strength of this church, inviting people into our homes, lingering for a long time after the service, eating donuts. There haven't been donuts because donuts are awkward when you have a mask and it's terrible. Some of you who want to start a campaign to bring back the donuts, I can't be divisive like that, but I can't stop you. Okay? <laughs> Hospitality has, has historically been one of our great strengths. Just inviting people into our homes, inviting people into our lives, inviting people into our small groups, into our missional communities, into relationships. It's not just, I've got a message to declare to you and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my duty and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offensively shout this message at you and then I'm going to go home to my castle and I'm going to pull up the drawbridge and I'm going to be alone. No, no, it's I have a hope that I want to share with you and and as much as I'm going to share the gospel with you, words alone are probably not going to help you to capture the kind of hope that I have. 
So I want to invite you into my life. I want you to see how it's working out in my marriage and my family. And when it's not working out, I want you to see the grace of God that I cling to. Amen? We're not just inviting people to a message. We're inviting them into our lives. Paul, when he's, when he's writing um, 1 Thessalonians, a letter to, to the people, the church in the city of Thessalonica, he talks about this affection that began to develop with them as he began to share the gospel with them. And like, as, when he, he, he met them, complete strangers, he went to plant this church not knowing anyone. But as he gets to know them, as he shares the gospel with them, there's this deep affection that began to grow between him and these strangers in a foreign city. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Listen to it again. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, and you know what? What better could we share? Like, that's the most wonderful thing that we could share. But we love you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Practicing hospitality and inviting one another and inviting strangers into our homes. How weird is that? It's crazy weird. And, and if you were a part of the culture of the church, you're like, oh yeah, we did that all the time. COVID has probably trained you, oh no, that's really weird. If, if we don't know them, we don't know, their, we don't, we don't know what degree of you know, germophobia they have. We don't know how COVID cautious they are. Certainly we can't invite strangers into our homes. Yeah, that's what Christians have been doing for millennia. It's kind of part and parcel of the message. That we're going to recklessly love people. We're going to love people in risky ways. We're going to invite them into our lives. We're going to invite them into our family so that they can see this hope of the gospel being lived out. So that we can love them in such a way that it will stir them to questions about who our God is. Um, I love this aspect of the Christian life. And I get this is a little bit more extroverted. And some of you guys might have a little bit more bandwidth for hospitality than others, and that's fine. You know, we're, we're not all like people, people, people all the time. You know, some of us are. It's great. But in my week, one of, one, of the, one of the ways that I get to do this pretty much every week is I go over to Erickson Elementary. And I get to engage pe- with people who, by and large, don't worship my God. Don't love this Jesus who I love. Don't, don't know him. Don't, don't know his word. Don't understand this message of the gospel. And, and so what do I get to do? Prayerfully, I, I, get to, I get to walk into those doors just cognizant of my opportunity to love people well. I'm going to go love on some kids. I'm going to go love on some administrators and some janitors. They had, they had one, of their, one of their janitors retired, two janitors in the building. One of them, one of them retired Friday. I got to go to his party, you know, and celebrate and trash talk him a little bit because that's how men do it, you know. They don't want to say, I love you and I feel a lot of affection for you and here's a hug, though I think I probably hugged him, you know. But they want to trash talk and and talk about how they don't like each other and so glad they're not going to see each other and whatever. So, you know, you enter into it. But I show affection and I show love in a way that, that a grown man understands, as dysfunctional as that is, you know. 
get to love the administrators and the parapros and the social workers and, 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 and the people who are, who are working in the cafeteria. And boy, do they need love because that is a lot of crazy and that is so hard. You know, and, and, and Leslie, the receptionist at the front desk. Salt and vinegar chips, she loves those things. So every once in a while I bring a box of them. You know, why? Because I want to love people well. I, I love to bring other people into that place. And as I'm talking to them, I'm, I'm talking to them about this opportunity to just love people well. You know, and some of the people I bring in are Christians. Some of them are not Christians, you know, mentors to, to impact kids impacted by incarceration. But my hope in all of that is to just love these individuals who've been created in the image of God so well that they're going to ask questions because I'm not going in there as an evangelist. I'm not going in there preaching Christ. I'm not going in there even mentioning the name of Jesus. Well, what a beautiful thing when you've known some people for a time and they're inviting themselves to church. Because they're just so dumbfounded about how these weird Christian people that they think of as kind of terrible people are actually loving their own kids maybe better than they love. That's what we're to be about. That's the opportunity that we have. What do people outside the Christian faith need? They need to see the love of God, both in the gospel and through his people. And we can all do that. Some of you understand the gospel well and you're good at sharing it. Some of you don't. Well, get out there and give it a go and see how it goes and get some strikeouts and maybe eventually you'll get hit by a pitch or get on base. When it comes to loving people well, some of us are better at that than others. Some of you have better social skills than others. Some of you like people a little bit better than others like people. We get out there and we, we try to love people toward Jesus. It's just a beautiful, wonderful opportunity that we have. But we're not just loving people through our lives. We're also loving people by sharing the gospel with them. We want them to understand the love of God in the person of Jesus Christ, that God became a man, that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. Part and parcel of that is understanding what sin is. When our surrounding culture hears the word sin, what do they think? They think arbitrary rules made by bigoted people. They think some old white guys got in power and they made a list. And it wasn't a very fair list. And it was a discriminatory list, and it was an ugly list, and it was a, a list that I'm not interested in. It's stupid. They're just trying to make me feel ashamed of things that I don't need to be ashamed about. It's beating. What do I want people to think of when they hear the word sin? I want the people who I love who are far from God to have such a beautiful and increasingly robust glimpse of who God is. That when they hear the word sin, they, they, they understand that sin is simply something outside of the design and outside of the will of this wonderful, marvelous, tender, and loving creator. I want the people in my life to be so humbled by the way that I love them. That they're willing to entertain the thought of a God who disagrees with them. Who fundamentally disagrees with them. Who has a completely different worldview who says up and down is down and down is up, and when they hear it, they're like, I don't know, that sounds wrong to me. But if it's coming from this God, 
whose people love me like that, then I'm going to listen. I'm going to consider it. Maybe I'm wrong and maybe he is right. I want them to hear the gospel, the good news of God's grace. That that though we have sinned against him, he has come to pursue us. He has loved us. He has died for us. He has risen from the dead that our sins might be forgiven, not by our own merit, but because we trust in his merit, in his finished work, by grace through faith. Again, what do outsiders need? They need need to see the love of God, both in the gospel and in his people. And as outsiders begin to form connections and feel welcome and come to understand the gospel message a little bit better, they become explorers. How do I define explorers? People people who are increasingly open to receiving God's love and open to the gospel and open to, to trusting in God and surrendering their lives to his leadership because they see the gospel at work in the lives of the people around them. And perhaps they, they just begin to see the beauty and the unity of who God is and of what he offers to them. These individuals, these explorers, they might even intellectually believe that the message is true. And yet the truth of the gospel has not gripped their heart. They might believe that Jesus died and rose from the grave, but that hasn't changed them. That hasn't transformed them. That hasn't captivated them. James, he talks about, he talks about how you can know the truth and yet not live the truth. You can believe the truth intellectually and yet not have it transform your life. He talks about the theology of demons. He says, even the demons believe these things and they shudder. Okay? But it isn't a redemptive belief. They're not entrusting themselves to the goodness of God and the goodness of his grace and the truth of his love. And that might be true for some of you who are in this room right now. You know, you've been around the church enough, you've been in this church enough, you've been in enough Christian relationships that you're, you're starting to put together the pieces. You might be able to explain the gospel to somebody. And yet it hasn't gripped you. It hasn't grabbed hold of you. It hasn't captivated you. It hasn't transformed you. It hasn't become the central note of your life around which everything else comes into increasing harmony. What does this person need? What do you need if you're at this place where you, you, you increasingly like the church and you like the people and, and this, this God's grace sounds good and all this stuff, and yet you're not all in? You haven't surrendered your life to Jesus. That sounds scary. That sounds ridiculous. He is not central. What do you need? The explorer needs regeneration. In the words of Jesus, and I know this has maybe become like an American cliche or whatever, but truly in the words of Jesus, the explorer needs to be born again. They need a transformation of life that is is supernatural and is so profound that that Jesus says, I'd compare it to birth, to the very beginning of life, a reset, a start over. They need God to open their eyes to his glory so that they can see him as more beautiful and valuable and worthy of our devotion than anything else in the created world. Here's how Jesus talks about the new birth. John chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. He's talking to a man named Nicodemus who is is curious about the Christian faith but, but completely confused. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. 
Surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Born of water is like your mother's water breaks. Born of the Spirit is a supernatural work of God. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives work to Spirit. This is a work that God has to do. In the words of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Again, he, he talks about this, this transformation in a person's life that is so profound that, that it seems there's nothing better to compare it to than life starting all over again with new opportunities and and new sensitivity to the work that God is doing in the world. In John chapter 9, Jesus Jesus expounds the same idea. Early in the chapter, he, he heals a man that was born blind. And then that blindness becomes a metaphor throughout the rest of the chapter that he applies to the, to the religious leaders and, and to this humble man who is recipient of his grace. And he says, you know what, it's, there, there's more than physical blindness going on here. After healing this man, Jesus says, I have come into the world so that the blind will see. Not referring to the man that he had healed, but to all of us who are naturally spiritually blind. We're spiritually insensitive. We do not see the things of God. We don't believe them. We don't get excited about them. Obviously, we're all physically alive, and yet the scripture says that all of us begin life spiritually dead. Unresponsive, insensitive, disinterested in the things of God. Some of, some of you, you hear God's word preached and, and, and you hear the gospel declared and, and your hearts just well up with enthusiasm. Yes, this is the goodness and the grace of my God. Some of you, you hear the same message and you're like, man, this one's going long. You know, and, and some of you, like, like God is working you when you, in you by grace and yet your preacher's still going long. And that's just, that's just the paradox of a fallen world. I got, I got nothing for you there. But some of you, like God, God, the Spirit speaks, and you just don't listen because you're spiritually dead. Here's how Paul describes it in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He says, of all of us, he says this to believers. He says, as for you, you were dead. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, everyone, universally, all of us also lived among them at one time. Gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. We were under God's judgment, living in rebellion against him. Verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So 
Some of you hear that message and it does not resonate. You hear that message and it does not grip you. It does not compel you. It does not draw you in. The things of God are mildly interesting, but they're they're not central. They're not overwhelming. They're not glorious. What does glory mean? Glory means weighty. Glory means of all the things in your life, this is the heavy one. This is the central one. This is the thing that everything else orbits around. And that is a work that God does by His grace of opening up your eyes to see that He is more glorious. He is more worthy. His grace is more good than anything else that you could pursue, anything else you could seek, anything else you could build your life around. The explorer is somebody who has some familiarity with the things of God, has some familiarity with the people of God, is having a good experience, is liking all of this, and yet God has not gripped and transformed their life. What does this person need? They need regeneration. They need the new birth. They need God to supernaturally do in them what I cannot do. So if somebody wants to share the hope that that I have, what am I to do? What are you to do? We continue to love these individuals. We continue to seek to clarify the gospel. But most of all, we pray. Because we recognize that, that we cannot make dead people live. Paul talks about sharing the gospel and, and he says, you know, we are, the, we are the aroma of Christ among those who are saved and those who are perishing. To one where the smell of death, like they hear the gospel and it, it smells awful to them. To the other where the fragrance of life. And who is equal to such a task? That's what he says. All of us who want to share the hope that we have with the lost and dying world, we should, we should recognize who is equal to such a task. This is, I don't have this in me. I need God to move. I need God to redeem. And so as much as I want to get out there as an extrovert and share the gospel with people, I need to get alone. Or I need to gather with some of you and fall to my knees and just pray that God would move. That's what I'm doing for some of you in this room. I'm praying that God would grip you. That God would move in you. That God would transform you for his glory. That you would become a passionate pursuer of Jesus Christ who engages the world with his love that you would become a follower of Jesus. That's the next stage in the process. And this is about what I want to cover for this week. So so here's where we've been, here's where we're going. We all begin as spiritual outsiders. As people who need to see the love of God, both in the gospel and through his people. And as outsiders begin to form connections and feel welcome and come to understand the gospel message better, they become explorers. Explorers need regeneration. Explorers need to be born again. Explorers need God to supernaturally move and draw their hearts towards Him. They need to move from a cold spiritual indifference to a white-hot joy at who God is and what He has done. And as they do so, they become followers. You know, in kind of colloquial terms, cultural terms, we talk about becoming Christians. In biblical terms, we talk about becoming disciples. Okay? Because a disciple is a follower. If you think about the original disciples, they are, they are the people who followed Jesus for the purpose of becoming like him. That's what a disciple was in that culture. It wasn't a term that Jesus invented. It was, it was a protege. You know, whatever your industry, whether you're studying to become a rabbi like you know, Jesus was, or whether you're, 
you know, trying to become a plumber if they had those back then, or a carpenter, I know they had those. You know, you're, you're an apprentice. A disciple is somebody who follows Jesus for the purpose of becoming like him. A disciple is a learner who's, who's hoping to teach others everything that they learn about Jesus. That's where we'll pick up beginning next week. And then next week, I want to talk about the next couple of stages in the process. This transition from followers to members, and from members to mature reproducers. I want to ask, for, for those of us who have decided to follow Jesus, who, who, who God has, has just opened up our eyes to see him, and we've clung to him, and we love him, and we've been redeemed. For those of us who are followers, I want to ask, what does it look like? How, how do followers of God relate to the people of God? What does it look like for followers of God to relate to the people of God? And as Mosaic Church, the way we try to expound that and map that out is through our membership process. Some of you guys have been through that. Some of you guys are in that process right now of seeking to clarify, how does a follower of God relate to the people of God? And again, that's kind of been a strength in the life of our church of trying to clarify that. And COVID's made that really confusing. You know, like one of the things we call each other to is gathering together, you know, to not neglect the gathering of the saints of the body of Christ, and yet that's all gotten shaken up. So, you know, like part of our membership meeting coming up this week, it's to, it's to remind each other of what we've been called to, and we'll get into some of that next Sunday as well. And then I want to ask, how can each of us continue as we transition from, like, members and followers to mature reproducers? I want to ask, how can each of us continue to become more like Jesus and continue to help others become more like Jesus? How can we grow in our faith and grow in our effectiveness in reproducing our faith in other people? So that's where we've been. That's where we're going. As we close, I just want to go back to a couple of questions that I framed um, all of this around at the beginning. I want to ask you to ask, where am I at in this process? Where are you at in this process? You know, are you in the outside? Are you exploring? Are you, are you following? Are, are, you a, are you a member? Are you... Are you an increasingly mature reproducer? Where are you at in this process? And again, there's no guilt and shame around this. We all start at the same place. We're all called to the same destination. And we're all desperately needed help in the process of getting there. But where am I at in that process? What do I need and what would next steps look like for me? What help might I need to ask for? And then I I want you to think about some of the people in your life in your family, in your household, in your friend group, among your coworkers, Where are they at in this process? What would it look like for you to help them move forward in this process? How would you pray for them? How would you intervene in their lives? How could you try to love them toward a greater depth of knowledge of who God is and a greater joy in following One last thing, as you do kind of this diagnostic stuff about your own life or about the lives of the people around you, I want you to understand there is no place for pride. There is absolutely no place for pride. You're not climbing a spiritual ladder. This isn't a pyramid scheme. You're not, you're not trying to get above people so they can be in your downline so that you can get you know, some dividends up from their sales. 
This isn't an opportunity for you to proudly look down on somebody and say, oh, I've got it figured out. Let me, let me help you because you're an idiot and I'm so mature. Pride is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are the people who believe that we are so wretched and wicked and sinful and helpless that the only way we could be redeemed is if our God became a man and died in our place. I don't know if it was Luther or one of, one of the old dead guys said the, the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the, is the sin that made it necessary. Okay? It wasn't Luther. Some of you guys are like looking like, I know who did that. I don't, I don't know who said that. I'm just acknowledging it wasn't original to me. Okay? We don't bring anything to the table. And so as we're looking to invest in the lives of others, there should be no pride in it. This shouldn't be, I, I aspire to be a teacher so I can have a position of authority over somebody. No, this should be, how can I offer the grace of my God? There's no pride in this. Second thing, there's no shame in this. You might look at your life and, and feel legitimate shame over your failings. Okay, that's fine. But God is not calling you to shame. God is calling you to his grace. You're not going to become a better disciple maker by focusing on the ways that you failed in the past or the ways that you're failing in the present. We don't effectively share the hope that we have by, by wallowing in our failures. We effectively share the hope that we have in God's grace by clinging to God's grace ourselves. Making disciples, it's not like making cars. It's not like manufacturing. It's, 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 not this, it's not this physical work that we do and you, know, you put in these inputs and you get these outputs and it, and it works that same way every time and if we just work harder, we're going to get a better result. Yeah, there's a place for hard work, but, but what we're talking about in making disciples is we're talking ultimately about bearing spiritual fruit. We'll talk about it more next week, but, but Jesus, he talks about the gospel seed falling in good soil and producing a harvest 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. The way that we bear good gospel fruit is not by doing better and trying harder, but the way that we bear good gospel fruit is by sinking deeper gospel roots, by continuing to cling to God's grace and to delight in God's grace and to trust God in his grace and his goodness for the outcomes. Amen? So that's where we've been. That's where we're going. Um, it is not a burden or an obligation to make disciples. It is simply the joyful and blessed byproduct of a life that leans into him. Amen? Let's pray. God, I pray that we would be a people who delight in your grace and who find our hope in you. Um, God, I pray for, for just everyone in this room at different stages in this process of trying to figure out who you are, and what it looks like to follow you. Lord, I pray for those who felt like they've taken steps back in that process. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who so delight in your grace and so hope in your grace and so trust in your grace that we can be open and free about our failings and that we can be humble in the way that we ask for help. God, may we be a people of profound hope in you and may that hope overflow into the lives of those around us. Amen.